Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. Today's guest is a global marketing and communications leader. She has held executive positions at agencies that include, but are not limited to, Gray Advertising, Young and Rubicon, and Red Fuse Communications, and has led accounts that include Colgate Palmolive and Johnson and Johnson. She has worked in 223, that's right, 223 countries and is currently working on the brand side as the Vice President of Advertising and Social Media for Wake Fern Foods right here in good old New Jersey. Welcome, Rajana Chowdhury. Hi, Joanne. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. In full disclosure, Rajana is also one of my NYU colleagues. We met in the teacher's lounge one afternoon, and I was immediately impressed with your energy, and I could tell we were like-minded souls. So there's so much for us to talk about today, but what I always like to start with is, where are you from? Ah, I am from India, originally, and uh, continue to be Indian at heart while I'm American as a citizen. There you go. There you go. And how, how do you think that's influenced? You must be very happy right now with the new election. An Indian American, among so many other things, as vice president of the United States. Oh, absolutely. I'll be very honest. I'm a very global um, person, you know. But for me, more than the fact that there is an Indian uh, person of, of Indian origin, it's a woman who's oh, out yeah. there, which is fantastic. There's nothing better than that that could have happened. Because in India, I think India is probably one of the most um, progressive countries from that perspective. We had uh, an Indian prime minister, Indira Gandhi, for years before anybody That's else right. in the world up to it. So we understand that. So for me, the woman bit is the exciting bit. No, I, I agree. In fact, I was so excited at first just to hear that Joe Biden had gotten the, the gotten um gotten the, the, the win on this is that it was like, oh my God, that's right. And there's a woman. <laughs> there's a yeah. woman as vice president. And she's a person of color. I mean it was just, you know, it anyway, I'm still digesting it. Um <laughs> and I don't even know when we're gonna actually air this. So it, it may I may have digested better by the time we air this episode. But I don't think everyone listening actually knows who Wakefern Foods is. In fact, when you first started working there, I think you had to tell me <laughs> who they were. But um, can you elaborate a little bit? Sure. So Wakefern is um, one of the U.S.'s largest co-op uh, organization. Uh, it is not a consumer-facing brand. The brands that are under the umbrella of Wakefern are the consumer-facing brands, and you'll probably recognize those. It is the largest co-op which runs a huge number of banners of retail chains. So the banners under uh, Wakefern are ShopRite retail stores, the Fresh Grocers, PriceRite, Fairway Markets, uh, Dearborn Market, um, and the Gourmet Garage. So as a 
company. We basically run all these retail organizations. It is the largest chain of retailers in all of uh, Northeast across um, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Washington, uh, Pennsylvania. That's where our stores are. It's pretty, I know it's it's qu- quite an impressive list. Is what, once I heard all the names, I was like, okay, now I know who Wakefern is. And your responsibilities there are as, what is this, your new title now? Vice President of Advertising and Social Media? Correct. So this is the most exciting bit of it. Um, you know, as I was thinking of transitioning from advertising into uh, what in the advertising world we used to call the dark side, which is the marketing side of it. Uh, <laughs> I was um, really uh, thinking about should I, should I not? And then I realized what a phenomenal opportunity this was. And I'll tell you why. Because as a company, there are three big things that are very exciting. Number one, we're setting up an internal uh, agency, which is going to do all the strategy, creative, production, and media. Um, So I'm setting up a whole team uh, doing that, which is exactly what I did on the advertising side. But the second piece is that as a company, we also have what are called the own brands. And there are three big brands we've launched, Bowl and Basket, Paper Bird and Wholesome Pantry, which are like a CPG brand. So I've got 25 years of running Johnson & Johnson and Colgate-Palmolive. So I understand CPG. So building the brand, developing the entire packaging, the uh, various uh, line extensions, phenomenal piece of thing. And the third, but last but not the least is uh, we are a retailer, therefore we are sitting heavy on first party data. We understand our customers very closely and how best to communicate and build relationship with them. So using that on knowledge to be able to derive the insights and then actually reach them where they are very effectively was a piece that I thought was really exciting about this. And so do you th- and so you're really you're bringing everything in house. Do you think this is something that you're going we're going to see more brands do? Is there so much conversation now about being on the agency side is is yeah. more um tenuous than ever before and that a lot of brands are starting to bring things in house like this? Yeah, so let me, um, you know, just step back a little bit and say even in the advertising uh life that I had, um I had an agency called Redfuse, which is literally uh, an in-house agency for Colgate-Palmolive Worldwide. So that's where I ran the business across 223 countries. So what we were doing was we were exclusively devoted to running the Colgate-Palmolive business across any communication need, whether it is uh, advertising, media by PR, digital, influencer marketing, uh, data analytics, consumer listening, whatever, name it. Everything. So we were almost like an in-house agency, but out-housed in WPP, right? So that was one of the key reasons why we as a combined team, which is Colgate and Redfuse, continued to grow in the face of all the, um, I would say, ups and downs in the advertising world in the last, I would say, almost 10 years. We continue to grow to strength which basically proves the fact that the traditional advertising agency model is not as effective as it would be because all my other uh, team players or other uh, parts of the agency were not growing at the same rate as we were, nor were their clients. So that ability to be able to understand the business of the client like 
a perfect partner and be able to be in service of what their needs are versus in service of what the agency's growth rate should be makes all the difference. And if the agencies don't pivot fast enough to do that, there will be a problem and there will be a lot more in-housing versus uh, the kind of model that um, you know we were seeing uh, with Red Fuse uh, of the world. Pretty, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So, and social media it is in your title. Is there was there a specific reason for that? Are you really focusing on that more so than other aspects? Yeah. So um, it, it's an interesting thing that uh, before I joined the organization, advertising and social media teams were two different teams. And I was, <laughs> the silos they kept them in the silos instead of realizing yeah. we can't do that anymore, right? I'm looking at myself, I don't understand this. If I'm communicating to my customer, all I need to know is what I'm communicating and then wherever he is, I'll go. So that's how we brought it all together. And therefore, I'm running both the departments, uh, advertising and social media, which really is now one department, which has advertising team, the social media team, and the media strategy and buying team. So they can all talk to each other the way the way we want them to. Um, so you know that one of the courses I teach at NYU is social media and the brand, and, and I don't know about you, but as time has gone on, I found myself with a real love-hate relationship with it. You know, on the mm-hmm. one hand, I see it as a force for good, and then and even during the pandemic, a lifeline. But there's also that dark side of it that we see a lot. I, I'm curious your thoughts and how you approach this for your brands. Yeah, I think um, we kind of... Um, blur the lines between social media and specific platforms. Uh, And then that heavy reliance on just those platforms, uh, which is, you know, anything in excess becomes poisonous. It's like (laughs) eating too much sugar is bad for you. As I've learned that during the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like too much of Facebook, too much of one thing. It's a problem. So, Everything has a flip side. Every human being has a shadow. The fact is that we have to be careful about how we are leveraging platforms. Just to give an example, even though I run social media, when the entire boycott started on Facebook, I was the first one to actually pull out as well. I totally back it. Despite It's a huge platform to reach my customer, but Mm -hmm. there is a point where you have to draw the line between what is profitable and what is correct to do. And as a company, we have a responsibility towards our customers to not just push and sell, but also to be able to uh, service the community at large. And therefore, our objective is to not Uh, you know, either spread misinformation or uh, expose our kids to the wrong uh, platforms and all that. So there is a definite dark side to it. We just have to make sure that we are managing it appropriately and backing the right players to drive the right changes in those platforms. Are you back on now or have you still kept up with that? The boycott's kind of over now, I think, though, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, there were big brands like Coke who continued all the way. And Coke is a partner of ours, as are a whole host of other CPGs. And um, we were not uh, leveraging any communication for Coke on our platforms. But yes, we are back on um, on the platforms. Yes. I see. That's true because you have, a, you have, a, sometimes you're often 
advertising for the the brands that that you that you that you actually carry. Um, I was fascinated, too, when I learned that you had a master's in philosophy of advertising from the Delhi School of Economics in India. Do I have that correct? That's correct. I, I had never heard of a master's in philosophy of advertising, and you know, I spent most of my corporate career on the ad side, side of things, and I always joke that the only philosophy I think that was there was how much money are we going to make from this. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious how that background has influenced you. Or even yeah. what that means, a master's in philosophy of advertising. I'm, I'm not, I, I, that would be helpful to understand too. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, advertising, when you say that term, it seems very much about, uh, people normally think of it as these uh, freaky, uh, fun-loving, free-spirited people sitting and developing uh, beautiful ideas on the beaches and drawing and writing some fun stuff, one one line a day and enjoying that. So there's a very arty, uh, I would say, impression that one gets or image one gets. But advertising truly is a perfect blend of science and art. Mm-hmm. Because if it's just art, you might as well become an artist and put up your exhibitions, right? But in advertising, you've got to understand, number one, the true psychology of people. That is true science. And that's mm-hmm. literally biology and, and stuff like that. So you got to understand how people react mentally and viscerally when they see a piece of work or hear something. Second, it is very data-led because it's not about one person said this and you know when hundreds of others are saying something else, you've got to understand the data and read the patterns to be able to get the right uh, direction and insights and then build a creative brief and then build a creative out of that. Because I remember one creative director would tell me a great brief writes itself out. Mm-hmm. I don't even need to move a pen. So getting to that right brief takes the science, takes the understanding of the math and takes the understanding of the psychology of people to get there. And when I did the my master's in philosophy of advertising, that's what you learn. It's a pre-PhD uh, course where you actually understand what is the philosophy that goes into building the right communications. Okay, that's pretty fascinating. I think that's quite fascinating. I think we need we need a little bit more of that. Um, so I'm going to switch a little bit here. Um, Clearly, the food industry has not suffered from the pandemic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fact, we probably needed you folks more than ever. It's kind of just in the reverse, but you've still had to to adapt. How has that been in terms of, you know, I'm a a digital transformation. I'm one of those people that's of the philosophy that this whole pandemic has accelerated the digital transformation that we might have seen 10 years down the road. So I'm curious how, how that's happened, how, how that's worked for, for the food industry. Oh, it's tremendous. Uh, as you said, we are an essential service. Uh, you know, whatever happens, we need food three times a day at least, right? So <laughs> whatever happens, even if you're living on the street or you're living in a, you know, back of the beyond, uh, you know, in a small place, you need food. So from that perspective, uh, the, the surge in overall, um, I would say, business was huge. However, the 
flip side of that, again, you know, there's a, the bright and the dark side to everything, right? The, mm-hmm. the flip side of that is that a lot of people, and I'm, I mean across all demographics, were anxious about going out and shopping as freely or as frequently or, you you know, as for as long as they were doing it earlier. Therefore, the uh, desire to fall back on e-commerce was very high. And it was also an interesting thing where it wasn't the millennials and the Gen Zers who are very, I would say, intuitive about digital um, shopping, communication, and search. It is also the boomers who are behaving mm. literally like the millennials. So that transition literally happened overnight. Those boomers who are sitting and watching their entertainment on uh, digital uh, devices, they were uh, searching, they were buying, they were entertaining. So Zoom meetings, WebExes became like second nature to boomers. So suddenly they were like digital natives in, in, a, in a year. It was incredible. That meant that we had to boost our uh, web transactions literally overnight. So we had 400% growth in e-commerce. Wow. But our bandwidth was <laughs> not enough to be able to carry that load. So we learned a lot because obviously we had plans in place in the next four years, I'll be very honest, to be able to get to that right place. We have shrunk that four years down to now six months. In six months, we've done what we would have probably done in in four years. And by the way, it's not over because we're expecting to get similar growths going forward. So we are shrinking the next uh, four years now in the next couple of months. So it is a tremendous growth. And likewise, from a communication perspective, because, you know, when you are a retail chain, you're also behaving like the the media for the people because you have to announce to people what are the interpret, what the governor uh, is telling you in terms of change in rules. What are you supposed to do in masking for safety, for the number of hours, senior hours? We are providing all that information in easily digestible, you know, language for our customers to understand. So the speed with which we had to pivot our communication, whether it was on social media or our call center or on our advertising or our circular, it was crazy. We literally behaved like a media house. Wow. Wow. Because the, the up, again, you know, you think about it too, is that in this short period of time, I, you know, I always say that the what the the bar is for what we expect from any given website, I'm just using a website as an example, has raised over time. We expect speed. We expect it to be intuitive. We expect to be able to find things. And now, because so many more people are, are using it more as a, it's a lifeline, that, that goes up once again. So if you have the least, your customer experience can really, can really get screwed up, so to speak, if you're not doing it right. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, uh, we were not without faults. Like I said, we were not ready for that. I mean, everyone everyone ran into pitfalls, but... Yeah, 400% surge, and which meant long waiting lines, slots which were given four days later, delivery which was 10 days later, a lot of, lot of issues. But we've slowly overcome that to a point where now we're promising same-day delivery of grocery, which is phenomenal. 
I know it's kind of funny when you when I when I order things now online. I'm like, oh, I can get that today. What a concept! You know, you got so I got. I almost felt like the way my mother used to shop, where she would shop for a week in advance, and I had never really done that before until the pandemic. Um, has there been a more of a focus on social consciousness for the company? Are you are you finding that too? Because that seems to be such a trend at this point, and you are food food service. Oh, absolutely. Which is why I was telling you that our um, as a company, especially as a food company, we have to be very, very conscious of the community and not just our product and just our service. That is key to our very survival. And the fact that we are a co-op, as a co-op, we are essentially 51 family-owned stores. So the mm-hmm. stores are run by family. There's a heart to every store. It's not a giant chain which just kind of gives out diktats. Every human being, every owner knows each and every member, every associate in the organization. So it's a it's a very familial organization. So what we did, in fact, immediately, the need of the hour when it started off was how do we take care of our essential workers, which are everybody was recognizing the staff in the uh, hospitals and in the fire departments and ambulances, but nobody was recognizing the fact that those grocery store workers had to come every morning and get exposed to hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. They were fronting, literally the frontline guys themselves. So we no, they were essential workers. They were essential workers, just like the doctor, the hospital people were. Exactly. So we launched a campaign to recognize our own essential workers, and we called it the Essential Thanks Campaign, where we essentially it was consumer facing. We asked anybody and everybody because uh, people were writing thank you notes for them. We asked everybody, said, if you want to say a thank you to our associate, go to our uh, essentialthanks.com, leave a thank you note. For every thank you note that you leave, we will contribute a dollar and we will take this money over a million and a half and we will contribute it to the food banks uh, in our uh, community. And that's what we did. Yeah, we contributed over a million and a half to all the food banks. So that was one. To, you know, it had two sides. One was thanking our associates, so they felt good. Second was we collected the money and helped the community where people were standing up in lines waiting for food, and we gave that. We also donated enormous amount of PPE to uh, the, the hospital staff. Uh, we donated some of our refrigerated trucks to the governor to transport some of the essential um, items for uh, during the pandemic to the hospitals and back. So we did an enormous amount of uh, whatever good we could do uh, to help in the situation. So you, you mentioned that these, you know, I, I forget the fact that this is a co-op and you mentioned that again, that these are all family run organizations. Do you have to present to them what you're going to do for advertising? Do they have to, is there an education that goes on with that? Or or do you just have carte blanche to do whatever you want to do? Oh, no. Like any organization, I mean, even when I was um, running Colgate, even though it wasn't a co-op, uh, there were, uh, a, a, you know, a panel of senior executives who we would present to. Everybody had to approve it and then we would go forward. But the best way it works is you always have a core group who is a decision maker because advertising and communication is not a democratic system of add this word and I think add that word. It has to be one team who is a decision maker 
the rest of the people can give their points of view. We It is the committee who decides whether or not those points of views have to be taken into account or not. But ultimately, the committee is responsible for delivering the creative and the results. So same thing here. The difference is instead of having a general manager of every country, I have a owner of every, uh, you know, there are 51 owners, they, but we have a small committee of five um, members who makes that decision for all of them. Very interesting. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch over again for a, a little bit back to our, my favorite thing here, social net social media, which I'm really it's not really my favorite thing, but I'm curious about some opinions you have on it. So how do you see the social networks evolving? I mean, I, I know you're also a fan of Scott Galloway's and he's got this idea that things should start, especially on a Twitter, start evolving into a subscription model. Do, do you think that's that's something that could happen and and how would that affect then you as an advertiser? I mean, do you, or as a advertising on the networks or using yeah, the networks? I- I get it. You know, frankly, there has to be a change in the model. I remember uh, almost a decade back when Facebook would say that we're not going to ever advertise, right? Mm -hmm. Build a fan page. So that used to be the model. Every brand comes and builds a fan page. And that fell. Because we actually... Because no one goes to the fan page. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's very good. And, And how much investment needs to build a fan page? And then suddenly all the investment you had done all went down the drain because, oh, oops, it doesn't work. And then it was all about, let's do advertising. Oops, people get turned off. Okay, let's put it not in the, uh, you know, advertising, but let's put it in the feed. So the model has constantly been changing even, you know, since since the day one. And I think uh, Scott's got a point that somewhere along the line, there will be a need to um, monetize the platform beyond just advertising. Mm-hmm. Because there was a huge blow, uh, you know, that whole New York Times case study, which talks about how uh, the, you know, subscription model became uh, literally the savior one time, right? So initially, people felt that the whole limiting the number of articles, it was free to a point, and then you had to you know, get into a subscription to be able to get the in-depth stories and more than the three stories that you could get. But now that's become the practice. Right. So somewhere along the line, I'm not sure if it's exactly that, uh, that would work, or is it uh, a certain level of uh, interaction you can get free and then the model will have to be a subscription model beyond that. Uh, I'm, I'm no expert in that, but I think that will be good. How would that impact us? I think the one good side of this will be there will be more control. Therefore, there'll be a safer environment. There you go. There you the, go. The people who will be there are mean, mean to be there. They're paying through their mouth. They're no, right? So they'll be reliable. Yeah, yeah. It, you, you, you won't worry as much about making sure that you're not paying to reach bots and um, – fake accounts that are for people that don't really exist. So that's another that's another part of it that would happen automatically with as soon as you have to pay, you have to be some sort of a real person. So um, you you use LinkedIn a lot personally, and I love how you use it. I see you share a lot. Do you approach that strategically as you or just as you see fit? I'm just curious from a personal branding standpoint. Uh, so you know, I'm a very curious person. 
I like to read a lot and I like to learn new things. And when I get um, some information or some articles that are relevant, I feel somebody's taken the time to curate it and send it to me. And I'm very grateful for that. So I feel that it's my responsibility somehow to actually share it out with anyone who's interested and for whom that data or that information would be relevant. So it is not about a strategic thing to to build my profile more than that. It is really uh, what I believe is called paying forward, which is why I teach. I believe that all the knowledge I've accumulated, I can't keep it to myself. It has to be given up. <laughs> so it's that urge. So that's exactly how I do it on LinkedIn. No, I like that. I mean, organically, you are building your brand because I know when you show up in my feed that there's an article and when I see something that you share, it's like, I should pay attention to this because it's usually good stuff. So in a way, without being strategic, you're organically building, building, building your brand. So how have you been managing to stay sane in this crazy, crazy time? <laughs> um, so or maybe my, you're not. I don't know. You sound very sane to me right now. So, <laughs> look, I'm outside li- of having some vodka. You know, that's a part of this podcast. Is the martinis is is it may not be your your choice of alcohol, but it's what's going to make me pause and say, okay, the day is over. I've been in my house all day. Yeah, funnily, my choice of uh, liquid uh, intake is H two O, and that's it. I don't. I'm not a uh, um, liquor person. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> how do I stay sane? Um, look, I'm born and bred in the advertising world where every day was a crisis. So fighting crisis is comes, you know, you, you turn this into a second nature. And when you're running business across 223 countries, it's a lot of stuff that is going, you know, past your, your table that you have to look at comment, approve, disapprove, and get it going and, you know, put it out. So the only way you work is you wear blinkers. You focus on what's you what you need to do immediately, urgently, and get that out, and then the next, and the next, and the next. If you try and look at the entire play, you know, table with 500 stacks of things to do, uh, probably I would go crazy too. No, I, you know, I spent many years on in the advertising side of things and I, as crazy as some of the stuff was, there's some skills in there that I learned that make it easier in a time like this. And one of them is, and I agree with you hundred percent is that so often it was about putting out fires during the day. So yep. it was just part of what you did and you couldn't allow yourself to get too crazy about it because it just had to get done. So you had to look mm-hmm. for a solution as opposed to focusing on the problem part of it. Yeah, and, and John, I'll tell you, I joined on 9th of March and 16th of March, everything was shut down. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I walked into the office day one, I met people. Day two, I met people. Day three, my boss, the, the chief client officer called me and said, hey, Ranjana, can you see if your uh, entire department can work from home and what would it need? Well, you know, we won't do this, but just check. Wow. This was day three. I had no clue who the team was. I didn't know what the process <laughs> was. 
I had no idea what what we needed to do. And suddenly when I started looking into it, I realized, oops, we are a a newspaper house because, you know, we produce a circular every week. And that circular has 60 items every page. And there are 10 pages. That's 600 items from 15 different sources and so many different you know, uh, connections and pipes that are connected to the office. How do I change that? But again, advertising comes to play. That was my job. I would be parachuted into any part of the world, not understanding the culture, the government, the people, the organization, but I had to find a solution. That's exactly what I did. It took me a day to understand exactly what needed to be done, realized that there was going to be some technology requirements, got in touch with my technology team. I said, I need everybody to have a a base, you know, computer. We bought X number of computers, shipped them to everybody's house and just got it going. Wow. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing that you did that so quickly, but that's what you have to do, right? That's mm-hmm. what you have to do. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have one last question mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. So you've been in this business a long time. You're clearly brilliant and, and very good at what you do. What would you say that you think makes a really good marketer in such changing and volatile times in today's world? Because I think it's changed over time and what yeah. would you say? Um, I think the one and most important thing for any marketer is ear to the ground. Mm. It is very easy, very easy for a marketer to get closeted in their own four walls and see the problem from within versus from without. It is critical that you keep your ear to the ground and realize what you need to do in terms of change, in terms of any kind of, I would say, um, reboot uh, or maintain, whatever that be. Those three things, because when you start looking at yourself from a consumer's perspective, you suddenly realize it's not important if my packaging is not perfect. What's important is how quickly am I delivering it to him? Because they desperately need that. There's a huge crisis. There's a shortage on paper. It doesn't matter if my packaging is not perfect. It's 80% done. Get it out of the door. And that's what we did because it was so important to fill that that gap. And people were grateful for it. They were not saying, oh, my God, your package ripped. <laughs> I That's all that mattered at that time. So keeping your ear to the ground is key. No matter what changes, that should never change. That is a wonderful way to end this episode. Rajana, thank you so much. Is there any, if anyone wants to find you or follow you, is there any place that you would like to add in? Oh, LinkedIn it is. LinkedIn it is. That is your social network of choice. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute delight to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor being here with you. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. This show would not be possible without my incredible creative and production team, Nadi, Cherry, Anthony, and Wah. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. 
If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note, info at joannetumbrakis.com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>